We are live again, ladies and gents. Well, actually, not really. In fact, that couldn't be farther from the truth. But I am here for yet another week. I'm your host, Blaine the Brain, and this is the Royal Ramble. And this week's show comes at you a little later than usual, as I just finished watching the AEW Double or Nothing pay-per-view a short while ago. So today, I'm here to talk about it. Actually, before I do, I want to make a few announcements. This is a pretty big week for wrestling fans, and a pretty big week as well for fans of the Royal Ramble, as I will have two interviews up on the YouTube channel. In fact, one is already uploaded, as I spoke earlier today with one half of SNME Radio's Young Guns, Matthew Ederer, to preview the upcoming NXT In Your House event next Saturday. And still to come this week is my big interview with former WWE Intercontinental Champion and Canadian wrestling great, wrestling great in general, Jacques Rougeau, who joins me to talk about his latest wrestling-related project, so stay tuned for that one. Also on the show, I will be previewing the WWE Hell in a Cell event that takes place next weekend and also doing a little fantasy forecasting slash booking for the upcoming July pay-per-view Money in the Bank. But first things first, the freshest thing in all of our minds is the show that just wrapped up, and that's Double or Nothing. So I'm not going to waste any more time, let's get right into it. So it appears that Tony Khan wanted to answer the main question that was on everyone's mind heading into the show right off the bat. Will he or won't he? Would MJF show up or not? Well, he did. He made it out for his opening bout with Wardlow and may have borrowed something out of Ric Flair's closet as he was sporting a very Flair-looking entrance robe. MJF did such a great job of playing the cowardly heel here, and he had the crowd eating out of the palms of his hands for most of the match. It was great. They barely did anything, and the crowd just ate it all up. JR actually made the Roddy Piper comparison when referencing MJF, which is something I've brought up a time or two as well. Wardlow eventually caught him and just destroyed MJF with not just a symphony, but almost an entire concert's worth of powerbombs. I think he drilled him with at least 10 of them to finally pick up the win and an official AEW contract, and then they did the whole stretcher job with MJF afterwards. The Hardy Brothers versus the Jackson Brothers was up next. No, I don't mean Tito and Jermaine. It was Matt and Nick Jackson, otherwise known as the Young Bucks. The match has been done before in ROH, and I think because of that, and because of the age and limitations of the brothers Hardy, it kind of removed a bit of my interest in this match. But I thought overall they did a fine job here. It wasn't as fast-paced as most Bucks matches, but I didn't really expect it to be. They actually had Caprice Coleman from Ring of Honor on commentary during this match. I found it a bit strange that he called this match out of every other on the card, but I guess since there is a bit of an ROH tie-in, it kind of makes sense. Jeff had a few problems with his boot at one point, which ended up taking him out of the action for a short while. I heard he twisted his ankle or may have been concussed or something, but something was definitely off. The Bucks tried adding insult to injury, attempting to finish Matt off with the Hardy's own finishing sequence, which was a twist of fate followed by a swanton bomb, but Matt kicked out at two. Once Jeff got back in the match, he hit a nasty-looking swanton to Nick, who was draped across the ring steps position on the floor, and then they finished Matt Jackson off with their own twist of fate swanton combo. A bit of a surprising outcome here, but not a bad match. There was a weird segment up next where the acclaimed and ass boys cut a pre-tape promo on the Las Vegas Strip saying they were going to party hard. As we transitioned to the next scene, it showed Billy Gunn showing up at the hotel room to find both his boys and the acclaimed passed out drunk. This was kind of funny though, Billy actually took the blanket off of his own son Colton and placed it on top of Max Caster. 
This was a very weird spot to have on a pay-per-view though, and especially one with 13 matches. This definitely could have been saved for TV. Up next is a match that I know most people, especially Dan Lavransky from SNME Radio, have been looking forward to, and that is Jade Cargill defending her TBS title against Anna Jay. All jokes aside, this was terrible, especially the finish. But it wasn't any worse than I expected it to be. Anna Jay had the early advantage until the baddies attacked her on the floor. She managed to fight them off, and then Mark Sterling came hobbling out, showing some signs of his buy-in match with Hook and Danhausen. But his distraction backfired and allowed Anna to use his crutch on Jade for a nearfall. John Silver then runs out to attack Sterling and delivers a brainbuster on the floor. Anna Jay then scales the turnbuckles but is distracted by an appearance from Stokely Hathaway or Malcolm Bibbins from NXT, whichever you prefer. He didn't do anything physical but his mere presence distracted Anna enough to allow Jade to hit Jaded off the top rope to keep the belt. And if that match wasn't overbooked enough, the baddies then attempted to team up on Anna, only for Chris Statlander to run out, followed by the debuting Athena, or Ember Moon for you NXT fans. So it's now 3-on-3 three three encounter in the ring, with Hathaway clearly on the side of Jade, and the baddies end up backing away after the brawl. Death Triangle vs. House of Black is up next in trios action. It's another match that could have been saved for TV, or at least the buy-in, but it was the best match of the show thus far. This was really good, especially some of the exchanges between Phoenix and Malachi. There was a scary spot where Brody attempted a tope con hilo, but landed awkwardly with his back smacking against the edge of the ring apron, though he appeared to be fine afterwards. Penta then sprung off Phoenix's back to hit a destroyer to Matthews on the apron, which looked really cool. The finish came when Pac was ready to put Malachi away with a black arrow, but the lights went out, and when they came on, Julia Hart was positioned in front of Pac, and she sprayed some mist into his eyes, allowing Malachi to hit the Black Mass, or whatever he calls it now, to win. Did I miss something, or was this not right in front of the referee? Was this supposed to be a no-DQ match? The first match of the Owen Hart Cup took place next. It was the finals of the men's tournament featuring Adam Cole Bay Bay against Samoa Joe. It was okay, but not up to par with some of the matches either of them have had, and the finish was weak. Basically, Bobby Fish ran out only to catch a shot from Joe, but the distraction allowed Cole to hit a pair of super kicks and follow with a boom or last shot for the win. The second Owen Hart tournament final was next for the women as Dr. Britt Baker took on Ruby Soho. Both ladies had live bands perform their entrance. Britt was performed to the ring by Rich Wood from Fozzie, while Ruby was performed out by Rancid. I found it interesting how both Britt and Cole in his earlier match wore pink tights, similar to Owen's ring attire. That alone suggested to me that the power couple would be claiming the trophy. I thought Ruby for sure would put Britt away with a sharpshooter, which she locked on, but didn't look like she had it fully applied, and Britt was able to reach the ropes. Britt was then able to reverse a victory roll out of the corner to pick up the clean win, similar to the one Owen used to beat his brother Brett at WrestleMania 10. To my surprise, Britt actually shook Ruby's hand after the match, so I wonder if they're going to use these wins to turn Britt and Cole face, as I thought for sure a babyface would be winning each of these tournaments. Tony Khan then brought out Martha Hart for a speech and to award the winners personally. Another match that could have been saved for television was the next one between Men of the Year and Paige Van Zandt with Dan Lambert against Sammy Guevara, Frankie Kazarian, and Ty Conti. Sammy and Ty were dressed like they came out of a fairy tale. Ty was dressed like Maleficent from Sleeping Beauty and they engaged in a lip lock in the entranceway that looked as though Sammy attempted to stick Ty's entire face in his mouth. 
The story of the match was Kazarian not being able to get along with his two teammates who seemed more preoccupied with their own PDAs than actually winning the match. As Ty and Kaz argued in the ring, Sammy attempted to cheap shot Kazarian with a super kick, but Kaz ducked and Sammy nailed his girlfriend and not in the way he would have liked. This brief distraction allowed Scorpio to hit the TKO for the win. A match added at the last minute was the next one between Darby Allen and Kyle O'Reilly. In the early going, Darby caught a stiff O'Reilly knee to his mouth which busted him open hard way, but to his credit he still kept pushing forward. There was another frightening spot in this match where Darby charged full speed ahead and tried to dive through the ropes, but he may have caught his foot on the bottom rope and looked like he landed flat on his face outside the ring. I'm happy that he looked okay, but I swear this guy needs to take it down like 10 notches. The end comes when O'Reilly drops a knee from the top rope down on Darby's ribs. Thunder Rosa turned back the challenge of Serena Deeb in the next encounter for the AEW women's title. This match was fantastic. It was a technical masterpiece and I definitely appreciate that there are multiple match styles on this one card so everything seems fresher. There was a great spot in the early going where Deeb applied almost like a hangman's backbreaker in the corner, but because Rosa's feet were still touching the ropes, Deeb had to break at 5. Then Rosa came back with a superplex followed by the fire thunder driver for the win. The next match was just all kinds of crazy. It was the Anarchy in the Arena match featuring the Jericho Appreciation Society who looked like they were auditioning for Magic Mike 3, and the team of Eddie Kingston, John Moxley, Brian Danielson, Santana, and Ortiz. JAS went up into the crowd to meet Kingston's guys and they paired off and engaged in a huge brawl as Moxley's music was still playing throughout. Eventually Jericho made his way to the soundstage and smashed the soundboard to end the music. One of the 2.0 guys caught a fork to the head from Moxley which busted him wide open. Santana and Ortiz then delivered a double team blockbuster to Hager through an outside table. Matt Lee's back was also covered in mustard from the concession stands and Tony made reference to the Tupelo days at Uncensored between the Nasty Boys and Harlem Heat. Interesting because many have compared Lee and Parker to the Nasty Boys. In the backstage area, Garcia had a belt wrapped around Kingston's neck and was just dragging him around. You know, there comes a point where this is just beyond entertainment. It feels like they were about to pull guns and knives on each other next. Moxley had unhooked the top rope and used the buckle to beat on Jericho in the ring. Kingston then comes to the ring with a container of gasoline and pours it all over Jericho but gets some on Danielson as well. And then Danielson and Kingston start to go at it. And Excalibur notes that they legit don't like each other. So, uh, why are they on the same team? Eventually, Danielson is isolated in the ring alone with Hager and Jericho, and as Jericho applies a single-leg crab, Hager uses a belt to choke Danielson from behind, and eventually Aubrey calls it as Danielson passes out. There's a vignette backstage where Andrade El Idolo is talking to his lawyer about the AFO guys being losers, and this whole thing being a failure from the start. He then tells the guy to bring in his new business partner, and all of a sudden, Roosh from Ring of Honor comes right through the forbidden door. Then there's a Men of the Year promo where they brag about their earlier victory, and Scorpio says now that both Kaz and Sammy Guevara are out of the picture, who would be next? And then Dante Martin steps up, and Scorpio tells Dante he'll see him in SoCal, which I'm assuming means Dynamite this week. My goodness, how many matches are on this card? I was ready to tap out myself at this point, but we still had a three-way tag match for the tag titles with Jurassic Express being challenged by Team Taz and the team of Swerve Strickland and Keith Lee. 
There was another scary spot in this match where Swerve back body dropped Starks over the top rope to the floor, but the others were late in catching him, and it looked like Starks landed on the back of his neck, but fortunately looked okay afterwards. There was a good spot later on where the three big men went at it mid-ring. The finish was Jurassic Express hitting their double-team finisher on Starks as Luchasaurus flipped him over into a sit-out powerbomb from Jungle Boy, so the champs retain as I expected. The night finally ends with the championship match for the world title between Hangman Adam Page and CM Punk. Page goes for a moonsault on the floor early, but looks like he tweaked his knee on the landing, which he was selling throughout the match. Punk hits a roundhouse kick in the ring, but Page rebounds and nails Punk with his own GTS for a near fall. Page then goes for the buckshot lariat, but Punk catches him in a fireman's carry, but accidentally spins him into the ref, knocking him down. Once back on his feet, Page finally hits the lariat that he was looking for. He then turns to see the ref still down, and he looks at the belt and picks it up to hit Punk, but has a change of heart similar to Roddy Piper at WrestleMania 8, and instead goes for another buckshot, which Punk counters into the GTS for the win and the title. As amazing a spectacle as this show was, it's now behind us. Let us now look ahead, and what lies ahead of us is Hell in the Cell. The show comes at us next Sunday from the Allstate Arena in Chicago. I tell you what, we're now less than a week from showtime and only four matches have been announced. That's usually not a great sign. Also, it should be noted that all of the advertised matches are from Raw and that the WWE Universal Champion Roman Reigns is not currently booked to be on this show. So needless to say, it does seem like a very skippable event. And of the matches announced, there has been little to no build to any of them. In fact, the match thus far with the most build-up is the one that I'm least looking forward to, so I'm going to start with that. It's going to be Kevin Owens taking on Ezekiel, and I want to get this one out of the way as quickly and as painlessly as possible, because the more I think about it, the more it annoys me. Look, based on some of the posts and comments that I've read in some of the Facebook groups, I know I may be in the minority here, but I completely despise everything about this feud, and I'm not into the Ezekiel character at all. It isn't even anything original. It reminds me so much of Mr. America or the fake Razor Ramon and Diesel, and I hated all of those characters. I am kind of curious to see what will be their endgame here, because this is clearly Elias, so I'm wondering how they will eventually arrive at that ultimate conclusion, but my guess is they're going to drag this one out for as long as possible, so I unfortunately do not see it ending here. That said, I think KO has been great in this role. I just think this is far beneath him. So with Owens constantly accusing Ezekiel of being a liar and a fake, which again is not original, but he does a great job. I say not original because I remember Chris Jericho doing a similar character like 10 years ago. But given the nature of these characters and this feud, I think it'll end somewhat controversial, where Owens will try to cheat by hooking the tights, but the ref catches him red-handed, and while he tries to plead his case, Ezekiel schoolboys him and uses the ropes to get the pin, which the referee does not see. Ugh, let's move on. There's also a handicap match on the card featuring Bobby Lashley taking on both MVP and Omos. I was a little surprised that we already got the one-on-one -on -one match between Lashley and MVP on Raw this week, because I thought for sure that the end goal here would be for Lashley to finally get his hands on MVP. I think Lashley's obsession with getting even with MVP will end up costing him this match, as he goes after MVP only to forget about Omos, who sneaks up behind him as hard as that is to believe and applies some kind of head vice or nerve hold on, on Lashley, similar to the Great Khali's death grip, which eventually renders Lashley unconscious, and MVP is the one to get the pin, so this one also continues. Great. 
The triple threat match for the Raw women's title is also very puzzling. Clearly, this company does not know what to do with people who aren't involved in the title picture. I think Becky being added to this match can't be good for Bianca's reign. Bianca has been on a roller coaster ride lately. She hasn't had a terrible run as champion, but like Hangman Page in AEW, she's clearly not the face of the women's division, which I feel that as champion, she should be. Maybe she'll get there in time, but the question is, will WWE have the patience for that? History says no. I'm thinking Asuka tries spraying Becky with the mist, but Becky ducks and Asuka accidentally nails Bianca, allowing Becky to toss Asuka out and steal the pin on Bianca to win back the title. Let's face it, we know she's getting the belt back at some point, so why waste time? At least this way, it not only gives Bianca a valid case for a rematch, it also plants the seeds for a potential Bianca and Asuka program later on. That said, I think this title is going to be hot potatoed back and forth between Bianca and Becky in the coming months. So stay tuned for my Money in the Bank predictions. Plus, I think Becky definitely either needs to be champion heading into the Clash at the Castle show, or she should win the title at that event. The one Hell in a Cell match advertised for this show is the one between Cody Rhodes and Seth Rollins. While I don't believe this is a feud worthy of being settled inside Hell in a Cell, and I ultimately don't believe there is any motivation for a third match between these two to begin with, I think it's definitely a good decision to only have one Hell in a Cell match and not overuse the gimmick. I really hope they bring back the silver mesh at some point and get rid of the red. It'll be interesting to see how this one is booked. It should be a good match either way. I don't think anyone is disputing that. It's just the booking that is killing it. I don't think Rollins can afford a third straight PLE loss, but I also don't think it's wise to kill Cody's momentum. I think the best thing to do is a finish similar to the Triple H and Steve Austin match from back in the day where after a grueling battle, each guy grabs a weapon and levels the other, but as they fall, Rollins lands on top of Cody, getting the pin by accident. After the match, Cody will extend his hand, but Rollins arrogantly does the comb of the hair thing and then boasts about his victory all over Raw for the next couple of months saying that Cody may have won a couple of battles, but Rollins won the war. So then you have the Money in the Bank pay-per-view in early July, which leads us into the Fantasy Forecast. I'm going to try and book this card for you. I've heard Roman Reigns is to be challenged by Riddle for the WWE Universal title at the event, so I'll leave that match as it is, as I think Orton will still be selling his injury by then and return to challenge Reigns at SummerSlam. I can see the Usos having a tag title defense on that show as well, but I mean, how many teams do they even have anymore? I'm going to say the Street Profits get that shot as they've been demanding title opportunities on Raw lately. The feud between Becky Lynch and Bianca Belair will likely continue at this show as well for the Raw women's title, and I'm going to call it Last Woman Standing. You'll probably also get a Ronda Rousey title defense on that card, and of all the women on the SmackDown roster, the one that makes the most sense is Raquel Rodriguez, but they've done that match twice on TV in the last month, so I don't think they'll do a third match at this event, as I think they want to build Raquel up a little more and eventually turn her heel to challenge Rousey. As much as I'd prefer them to build Shotzi up as well, I think she might get this title shot as she's been very vocal on SmackDown lately about never getting any opportunities. I would think you'd also get another match between Edge and AJ Styles with some kind of stipulation, and I wouldn't be shocked given Edge's current character if they bring back the casket match for this feud. So that leaves the two Money in the Bank matches, and I am hoping and I am begging WWE that whoever they choose to win these matches is someone who they actually intend to push and not just a surprise for the sake of it. 
For the men's match, I would put Kevin Owens, Ezekiel, Bobby Lashley, Drew McIntyre, Finn Balor, Damian Priest, Sami Zayn, and Shinsuke Nakamura. And then the women's match. I would have Rhea Ripley, Liv Morgan, Raquel Rodriguez, Alexa Bliss, Aaliyah, Shayna Baszler, Natalia, and Asuka. So that's what's coming up in the next month or so in WWE land, and that's a wrap for me. The show is going to be slightly delayed next weekend as well, as I will be recapping the Hell in a Cell event following that show, so it should be up either late Sunday night or Monday morning. And then the week after that, the show will be on a hiatus, as I will be taking a much-needed vacation. But I'll be back the following week to preview and review the Impact Slammiversary event on June 19th. Until then, it's ABC, yeah.